Hi, this is Gary Meese with the case against. Back again to talk about the West Memphis Three case in which Michael Moore, Christopher Byers and, Byers and Stevie Branch were killed by Jason Baldwin, Damian Eccles, and Jesse Miskello Jr. on May 5th, 1993 in a wooded area in West Memphis, Arkansas after the three eight-year-old boys were missing. We're gonna to talk today about uh, Jesse Miskelly's confession. I'm not gonna get into the, the, the meat of the confession itself. That'll be for a, a, a later episode, one or two episodes from this. And I'm, it may take me a couple of episodes to get through that, since it's rather long and detailed. Uh, what I am going to do today is explain the circumstances leading up to the uh, arrest of the three men, three teenagers at the time, and. Uh, how Jesse Miskelly Jr. came to be uh, drawn into the investigation to begin with. Uh, essentially, he was a friend of Vicki Hutchison, who was son was friends with, particularly with two of the, two of the victims, Christopher Byers and Michael Moore, and uh, and had early on been involved in the in investigation in the sense that police had an interest in, in uh, Aaron Hutchison, the, uh, who was also eight years old and was also in the second grade at Weaver Elementary in West Memphis, uh, because, because he was friends with them, they hoped they could get some useful information out of him, which they never really did. Uh, they also never got any great, great, greatly useful information out of Vicki Hutchison. But she had used her acquaintanceship with Jesse Miskelly to make contact with Damian Eccles. And up to that point, uh, Miskelly hadn't been on the police radar in any sense. Uh, he was not known for wearing black t-shirts, listening to Metallica, or, uh, or, or a strange haircut, though his haircut was pretty strange at the time of his arrest, but that was true for a number of kids asserting their individuality in West Memphis, Arkansas in 1993. There was nothing unusual about long haircuts, goth-style haircuts, um, gigantic mullets such as the ones sported by uh, Jason Baldwin. Not all the kids had them by any means, but they weren't that unusual and certainly weren't anything that would draw the attention of the police. Uh, neither would have listening to heavy metal music drawn the, the attention of the police. And black t-shirts were also common and would not have drawn the attention of the police. What did draw the attention of the police was uh, Damian Eccles being among the early potential suspects just simply because he had already shown a potential for, for violent acting out and strange behavior. Uh, 
Witnesses put him near the scene of the crime very early in the investigation. And then he gave uh, failed polygraph and gave very incriminating answers, which later came back to haunt him at his trial about the killing without actually, certainly didn't admit that he killed the boys, but he, he gave some information, F, the police going off an FBI checklist that made him a likely suspect. And there were other factors. The more they looked into Damien Eccles, the more it looked like he might well be responsible for the killings. Uh, though certainly the eyewitness sighting uh, was enough in and of itself to uh, make him a person of interest. Uh, that eyewitness sighting, by the way, is not mentioned except in a very peripheral fashion in any of the th four documentaries that w uh, were made about the case, except uh, a brief allusion to it in, a, uh, in one of the Paradise Lost movies. It was a passing reference uh, talking about the uh, difficulty of trying the case with what they had and among the attorneys, I believe. So, and it was not explained in any kind of fashion. This is the last chapter in my book, Blood on Black, so I'll be going into my other book, the follow-up of this two-volume set called Where the Monsters Go in the Future. Uh, those books are both available on Amazon in print and in Kindle format, and I also have a revised, condensed version of the two books called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers, which is also available in the same formats on Amazon. And I'm just going to go ahead and get into the uh, materials here in a chapter called they were going to go out and get some boys and hurt them. The initial confessions on June 3, 1993 were the basis of the charges against Jesse Miskelly Jr., Jason Baldwin, and, and Damien Eccles. The Paradise Lost films and many subsequent references to that confession frame it as a result of a 12-hour interrogation with the implication that the police browbeat the non-too-bright Miss Skelly into a false confession. The times were on record and the facts vary greatly from the Paradise Lost time frame. And I'm going to get into, that's a lot of what this is about, the blatant lies. There's a lot of misdirection in the Paradise Lost movies and a lot of omitted materials but the reference to Miss Skelly's 12-hour confession is just a flat-up lie, that which they've never bothered to correct because nobody's going to hold them accountable except a few people on the fringes such as myself talking about the case. And we're safely disregarded because they know nobody, nobody is going to pay enough attention to us when they've got this highly lauded documentary film uh, to fall back on and all their Hollywood supporters. Anyway, that's, uh, at an 8 a.m. squad meeting the morning of June 3, 1993, West Memphis Police Department's 
quote, disgust attempting to pick up Jesse Miskelly Jr. in reference to his being a member of a cult that Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin are said to be members of. Check possibility of his being a witness to homicide or any statement he may have overheard from Damien or anyone concerning the homicide, end of quote. Excuse me. Um, Detective Mike Allen went to the Miskelly home and was told Jesse Jr. was not there, but that Jesse's father was at his job at Jim's diesel service. So Allen talked to Jesse Sr. at 9:45, and Jesse Sr. gave him the go-ahead to pick up and talk to uh, his son. Jesse Jr. was picked up at the home of Vicki Hutchison, Mike Allen, and Jesse. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I may have to cut this short if I keep doing this. Mike, Mike Allen and Jesse Jr. drove to the police station. A subject description was filled out at 10 a.m. listing the 17-year-old's height as only 5'1 with his weight at 125. He's a very small man. And uh, by the way, he was 17 at the time, but he was a month away from his 18th birthday. Uh, so he was not a, some young teenager. He had an FTW, fuck the world, tattoo on his right arm. <coughs> Excuse me, I may have to stop. Tattoos of a skull with a dagger, the initials of a former girlfriend, A.H., and NWA on his left arm and a bitch tattoo on his chest. Uh, just a guess, but NWA may have been some reference to Niggas with Attitude, which was a hip-hop group that was popular around that time. I don't know if Jesse was into hip-hop. Seems certainly likely that he was but it's not exactly the portrait of a heavy metal fan uh, Allen interviewed Miskelly Brian Ridge who was also a detective observed Allen and Ridge took separate notes according to those notes Miskelly said that Eccles was looks sick and drinks blood, that Eccles was always in the company of Baldwin, and that Eccles had a girlfriend, Domini, skinny, pregnant, and red-haired. Miskelly said he had known Eccles for about a year. Excuse me a second. According to Allen's notes, Miskelly said he last saw Eccles about three weeks before at Highland Trailer Park, which is where Miskelly lived, at the home of Vicki, which would have been Vicki Hutchison. I told her he's sick, is what Miskelly told him. Miskelly said he had never been in Robin Hood Hills. Ridge's notes indicated Miskelly said he had not seen Damien in over two months and did not know anything about the murders. Miskelly denied any involvement in Satanism. He acknowledged 
introducing Hutchison to Eccles three weeks before after saying he had not seen him in two months. In other words, there was a contradiction very early, early on in this this uh, interview that Eccles, I mean, Miss Kelly was saying that he uh, had not seen Eccles in all this time when in fact he'd just seen him a few weeks before. According to both sets of notes, Miss Kelly had heard rumors that Damien and another teenager <coughs> named Robert Birch had committed the crimes. Miskelly said he was working with Ricky Dees along with Josh Darby on roofing the week of the murders. On May 5th, the date of the killings, he said he got off at 5 p.m. and went home and stayed home. There was no mention of wrestling, socializing, or a police call, all these things that came up later. Uh, Ricky Dees and Josh Darby also uh, testified to uh, Miss Kelly getting off work much earlier that day, uh, or in the early afternoon, and with plenty of time to have uh, committed the murders. Miss Kelly said he went to the skating rink, which was in Skateland over in West Memphis and saw Eccles there nearly every time he went. <coughs> and uh, he said he had seen Eccles with Carl Smith and Jason Baldwin. Now there, there are other, other descriptions from friends of, uh, acquaintances, friends of both these teens that said they were both at the skating rink, certainly both on May 7th, which would have been two days after the killing, which so again, indicates and that some that some there's one account where they came in together so the idea that he hadn't seen him in two months is uh, contradicted by those statements uh, Miss Kelly saw Baldwin get into a fight and get his nose busted at Lakeshore which was uh, the trailer park where Baldwin lived and saw Eccles stick his finger into the blood and drink it And lick it. I may have to quit this if I keep coughing. Uh, Miss Kelly agreed to take a polygraph. Alan read Jesse Jr. his rights around 11 a.m. Miss Kelly signed the form. The police determined that Miss Kelly Sr. needed to sign a consent form. Little Jesse had been read his Miranda rights and signed similar papers on at least four previous occasions. In 1988, twice in late October 1992, and again that March. In other words, he was highly familiar with at least the wording of the Miranda rights. Whether he fully understood them or not is a fair question, but we could ask the same question about almost everybody that gets read Miranda rights, I think. Uh, he had been put on probation for stealing flags from school in 1988 part of a harebrained scheme to build his own raceway. 13-year-old uh, Tiffany Allen filed a police report on May 12, 1993, accusing Miss Kelly of punching her in the mouth. Now, I think Tiffany Allen at the time was about 12 years old, so she was a younger, uh, younger child. Uh, Miss Kelly had no complications about beating up children. At 11.15 on June 3rd, Miss Kelly, I mean, Allen was driving with Jesse Jr. riding in the front seat. They were out looking for Jesse 
Sr. when they spotted Jesse Sr. driving a tow truck on Missouri Street, which is the main thoroughfare in West, one of the main thoroughfares in West Memphis. Uh, the three met at the corner of Shopping Way at Chief's Auto Parts. Big Jesse, who had been to prison and was familiar with the legal system, signed a waiver allowing Jesse Jr. to undergo a polygraph exam. Jesse Jr. was advised again of his rights by, by Detective Bill Durham at around 11.30 a.m. in preparation for the exam. Jesse Jr. initialed and signed the form. Three charts were completed at 11.55 a.m., 12.03, and 12.11 p.m., with about 15 minutes spent on an interview after the test. After analysis, Durham announced around 12.30 p.m. he's lying his ass off. Durham indicated Miskelly gave deceptive questions of no to these questions. Number three, had you ever been in Robin Hood Hills? Number five, have you ever took part in devil worship? Number seven, have you ever attended a devil worship ceremony in the Turl Twist area, which is what Vicki Hutchinson had described to police and nine have are you involved in the murder of these three boys and ten do you know who killed these those three boys miss skelly broke down after being told he failed the test and immediately began to confess as officers took notes from 12:40 to 2:20 ridge and mitchell continued interrogating Miss Kelly, who admitted he saw Eccles and Baldwin kill the three boys. Miss Kelly's background on this, Miss Kelly said he had received a call from Baldwin with Damien on the line in the background the night before the murders. Quote, they were going to go out and get some boys and hurt them. Unquote. Baldwin and Eccles wanted him to go with them. Miss Kelly heard Damien tell Jason he ought to tell Miss Kelly that they were going to get some girls or something, but Jesse knew what was planned. Miss Kelly said he'd gotten three calls about the killings, one the day before, one the morning of the murders, and one after dark. In the last conversation, Miss Kelly said Baldwin was on the line, but Miss Kelly could hear echoes in the background saying, we did it, we did it. What are we going to do now? What if somebody saw us? He said it sounded as if Baldwin was at home on that call since he heard Baldwin's brother in the background. But Skelly couldn't give more exact times on the calls. <coughs> There's been a question about uh, phone company records on all these various phone calls, not just these, but others in the uh, in the case, and the police said, the police were questioned about this uh, during the tr trial, uh, Baldwin, tri Baldwin, the Eccles trial, I believe, and they said that they were not able to obtain the phone records. Uh, at this point, this late date, it's difficult to determine whether that was actually the case or not, uh, how much effort they put into it. 
no one know the ones who know are probably not going to be saying anything about it the police uh, don't that were most most closely involved with the, the investigation have pretty much said all they're going to say about the case understandably and uh, the phone company is not going to go out of its way to produce those records so we probably will never know for certain when these calls actually occurred, what calls were actually made, or even if these calls were made. There's a problem with Ms. Kelly's uh, ex uh, explanation of Baldwin and Eccles on the phone together in that uh, he doesn't give a time on the call of the evening, but, but uh, neither Baldwin or Eccles got home Evidence all suggests that they didn't get home till nine o'clock or afterward. Uh, we know Eccles was on the phone quite a bit of that time with uh, Jennifer Bearden and Damien Dominitier. Uh, there's no indication that Baldwin, based on the statements statement from Dink Dent, his mother's live-in boyfriend. Um, that Baldwin was on the phone to anyone except his mother that evening. So, did that phone call occur or not? It's, it's hard to say. It does sound like something somebody would say who was involved in the murder to say, we did it, we did it. What are we going to do now? What if somebody saw us? Muskelly said he had seen photos of the victims during a cult meeting. Uh, Muskelly was shown a pic photo of Christopher Byers after looking hard, after he looked hard at the photo, is how, how it's described. Muskelly said it was the Moore boy, referring to Michael Moore instead of Christopher Byers, and said the boy was in the Polaroid shown at cult meetings. Now, Muskelly Late in one of his many confessions later, uh, he told uh, an inmate his, about his involvement, another inmate after he was convicted, about his involvement in the killings and laughed about the fact that he never could keep all the identities of the boys straight. Uh, Michael Moore and Christopher Byers arguably didn't look that much alike, but they both had brownish, Michael Moore's hair was darker than Christopher Byers. Uh, you know, they don't really look alike, but let's just assume that uh, Muskelly either was throwing out a little disinformation to the police, as he did during the uh, interrogation and the confession, or he simply couldn't tell the difference between these boys or didn't care enough to come up with a correct identification. It's, it's hard to tell exactly what would be the cause of this misidentification. But he didn't know the boys. And presumably, unless he looked at the newspapers, presumably he was not familiar with uh, how they looked or how they would present themselves in photos. Uh, Muskelly said that a 15-year-old friend of Jason's 
named Ken, who wears a long coat. This may be Ken Watkins, but it's it's uncertain. Uh, would bring a briefcase to the satanic meetings, always held on Wednesdays, and the killings were on Wednesday. The briefcase contains guns, marijuana, cocaine, and a picture of the three victims in front of a house. He did not know who had the briefcase, which was never found. Ms. Kelly said Eccles had been in the woods watching the boys prior to the attacks. Uh, there is evidence from Eccles himself that he went through that area. He went across the pipeline, through the neighborhood, across the pipeline, and up through the woods several times a week as he made his walks between his home in West Memphis, Arkansas, which, where, which he claims he never went into. and Lakeshore Trailer Park where Baldwin and, and uh, Dominique Tear, his girlfriend, lived. He, he was over there every day, uh, presume, according to his own testimony. He walked that distance uh, and would have been familiar, certainly at least with the existence of the woods. If he didn't spend time, if he did not spend time in there, he certainly walked right, he walked through what would be considered part of it just just to get to where he was going. And it's a fairly small site. It's a couple of acres. It's grown up a little now. It was bulldozed a number of years ago and it's grown the last time I was there, which was two months ago or so, it grown up a little bit. Um, particularly along the creek which is harder to bush hog. And uh, it's certainly not woods now, but it's it's brushy now. Uh, Kelly said Eccles had been watching the boys for a long time and that he was hanging out at the skating rink to find boys. And Eccles was older than the average run of kids at the skating rink, which is a, a gathering place on Friday nights. And you can see from the footage available on YouTube that most of the kids were preteens or young teens and Eccles stands out in being markedly older, though certainly not old, but he, he was 18, uh, but he was markedly older than the average run of child running around the place. Uh, Ms. Kelly told officers that Eccles and Baldwin had sex with each other. Baldwin had a folding knife and always carried a knife, while Eccles did not. Miss Skelly said he, quote, didn't want to be a part of this. And said he said that uh, Eccles and Baldwin were the killers, while he was not. Miss Skelly described meetings of a satanic cult held in different places, including Robin Hood Hills, the wooded area, in which they would build fires of paper, wood, and stuff. Miss Skelly said, quote, Someone brings a dog and they usually kill the dog, so they will skin the dog and eat part of it. Uh, unquote. Uh, the animal killing was part of the ritual. If a person ate the meat, he became part of the group. 
Miskelly named some attendees, Christina Jones, Dennis Carter, Jason, Damian, Adam, Ken, Depp, Tiffany Allen, and Dominique. He didn't know many of the last names. Jones and Carter were friends with Miskelly. Those subsequently interviewed by police denied any involvement in the occult. Uh, and I'm Generally, eight or ten people would attend, and they had an orgy afterward, three-on-one, he said. Ridge asked him, or stated, Jesse told of one occasion, he wrote, he wrote his description of this. Jesse told of one occasion he had gone to the scene of the murders and sat down on the ground and cried about what had happened to the boys. He had tears in his eyes at this time telling about the incident. I felt this was a remorseful response about the occurrence and that he had more information than what he had revealed at this point. Those close to Jesse had seen signs of guilt and remorse. Miskelly's friend Buddy Lucas later told officers that on May 6th, the day after the killings, after at about 9 a.m., a tearful Miss Skelly had confessed his involvement in the crimes from the night before. Uh, by the way, Buddy Lucas passed his polygraph. Louie Rush, Jesse Sr.'s girlfriend, lived in the fa family trailer. Uh, after Jesse Jr.'s arrest, three police officers visited the Miskelly home and secured the scene until a search team could arrive. Detective Charlie Dabbs wrote, excuse me a moment, while sitting in their living room for approximately two hours and during conversation, Mr. and Mrs. Miskelly talked about different incidents. During the conversation, Mrs. Miskelly, she wasn't Mrs. Miskelly really, but she was his, Jesse Sr.'s living girlfriend. Mrs. Miskelly got to talking about Jesse Jr., how Jesse Jr. was waking her up at night, crying and having nightmares. Every time she went into his room, he would be crying hysterically and he would tell her it was because his girlfriend was moving away. She told us it happened a number of times and that she could not believe his girlfriend's moving would cause that kind of hysterical behavior, but that little Jesse had been acting strange. And they, that's how they usually refer to Jesse as little Jesse as opposed to big Jesse, Jesse Sr. Detective Tony Anderson, who was also there, wrote, during the course of this conversation, oh, at, he was at the... Uh, he was not in the interrogation, but at the uh, Miss Kelly home, uh, wrote, During the course of this conversation, Mrs. Miss Kelly made the statement, I knew that something was wrong. A few nights ago, little Jesse was in his room and crying so loud and sobbing so hard that it woke me up. I went in and asked him what was wrong. His reply was that his girlfriend was moving to Florida. Another short period of time passed, and Mrs. Miss Kelly made the same identical remarks again about little Jesse crying and waking her up. Uh, De Deputy uh, Howard Tankersley wrote, 
We sat there for two or three hours making casual conversation with each other in the Miskellies. At one point, Miskelly's wife stated that one night little Jesse awoke her. He was crying and screaming. He asked her the next day, day what was he, he has a date, but it was day, what was wrong? And he stated his girlfriend had him upset as she was supposed to be moving to Florida. Now back at the police station on June third, between twelve forty and twelve twenty p.m., uh, police broke down what little resistance Jesse Jr. had with a series of adept moves such as showing him a picture of the victim. Uh, they also encouraged him to think of himself as being inside the circle instead of outside it in terms of relief from the consequences of the crime, that sort of thing. Uh, basically they just encouraged him to talk to them which is not unusual in police interrogations, certainly nothing wrong and it's not considered coercion to perform these kinds of adept moves on uh, potential suspects. But um, Miskelly was already talking freely and then Gary Gitchell, who was the chief inspector, played a tape recording of an eerie voice saying Nobody knows what happened but me. The voice was Aaron Hutchison, who, by the way, knew Miss Kelly. And it wasn't in the context of implicating Miss Kelly at all, but this was enough to spook Miss Kelly into telling Miss Gitchell and Ridge, I want out of this. I wanted to tell you everything. And he did just that. So Miskelly explained through tears what had happened. We're going to get into that in a later episode. As I said, uh, Ridge, who, uh, who was also brought to tears, said in his notes, quote, Jesse seemed to be very sorry for what had happened and told that he had been there when the boys were first coming into the woods and were called by Damien to come over to where they were. And preparations then began for taping the confession. All this is very standard police procedure. There was no evidence of coercion here. Uh, there, there was a relatively brief time here when the police if they were going to feed story to Miskelly, they would have had to, number one, falsify these notes and get Jesse Miskelly Jr. on board with whatever story they decided. If they were going to make it up, whatever story they were going to make up and get all these details correct. And I, while there are some problems with Miskelly's initial confession. It's pretty obvious that he that was not just simply being fed information by the police. At 12.44 p.m., Miskelly was officially arrested for murder after being informed of his Miranda rights again. From 12.44 p.m. to 3.18 p.m., he confessed again in a tape-recorded session. 
Now this hardly sounds like 12 hours, does it? Break that down in a little bit. Because of discrepancies, Ms. Kelly later said he deliberately mis misrepresented key facts. Uh, Gitchell conducted a follow-up tape-recorded interrogation sometime between 3.45 and 5.05 p.m. The exact times on that fairly brief conversation were not recorded. Uh, the, the recording was made. We just don't have the exact times. Work started on obtaining search and arrest warrants for Eccles and Baldwin. Now the total time between Miskelly first being brought to the police station and the conclusion of that taping that day was seven hours and five minutes. With two hours and 19 minutes between the time the tape recorder was turned on and the last of the recording. Interrogations with Ms. Kelly as a suspect began at 12.40 and ended at 5.05, a span of 4 hours and 25 minutes with intervals of downtime. Ms. Kelly had been brought in around 10, much of the time between 11 and 12 was sp spent securing permission from his father for a polygraph. So he was telling all after a mere 2 hours and 40 minutes. Claims and the second Paradise Lost movie that the interrogation lasted 12 hours were highly misleading. And, and I'll just say that the, the time frame between the initial, the more serious questioning as a suspect and the tape recording were not very long and uh, all that was very much standard for police interrogations in, in terms of eliciting confession. If you're a following, follower of true crime at all, you'll see this over and over again in cases where there is not uh, recording, and certainly wasn't 1993, recording of the suspect or the potential suspect from the moment he steps in the door uh, till the last of the, of the conversations. There's almost always, there is a period that interrogators acknowledge is vital to getting uh, the facts from the potential suspect that usually goes for three or four hours. So Muskelly broke down rather quickly. Uh, Muskelly was offered food at 3.22 p.m., but Quote, he refused saying that he couldn't eat anything. Doesn't exactly sound like a grilling, does it? And he was offered food, he just didn't want to eat. Uh, he, was, he was given two cigarettes. He drank a Coke about the time of the follow-up interview. Again, not exactly dr draconian uh, treatment. He was asked again if he wanted to eat at 5.05 p.m. He refused, but did go ahead and get something to eat, unquote. He was given a hamburger and a Coke at 6.15 p.m. and was asked if he needed to go to the restroom at 6.33 p.m. <coughs> at 9.06 p.m., 
Ridge, Gitchell, and Fogelman appeared for a probable cause hearing before Judge Powell Rainey. Uh, he was a municipal court judge. Warrants were issued following immediate, uh, allowing immediate searches. Now, roughly 12 hours did elapse between the initial contact with Miskelly and uh, appearing in court for the uh, probable cause hearing, but by no means was Miskelly interrogated relentlessly for that entire period of time. It simply didn't happen. And any suggestion, the suggestion that it did is a flat-out, blatant, shameless lie. The Paradise Lost filmmakers probably knew better and almost certainly didn't care. At 10.28 p.m., police cars descended upon Highland Trailer Park, Lakeshore Estates, and Broadway Trailer Park as the residence of the three suspects. Uh, Baldwin and Eccles were arrested at the Eccles trailer while watching a horror movie, Leprechaun. Eccles' parents were at Splash Casino in Tunica County, Mississippi, about 50 miles away. Damien, Michelle, which is Damien's sister, Dominique, and Jason were celebrating the last day of school, although Jason was the only teen attending school at the time. Well into the prosecution of the case and after his conviction, Miskelly talked freely. At times he made claims of mistreatment and untoward coercion by police. He continued to swear he was innocent when talking to his father and family, but talked of his guilt with police and also with his attorneys, by the way, until they came upon the idea that the uh, confession had been coerced and suddenly conversations between Miss Kelly and Dan Stidham changed. Various officers and attorneys, both for the prosecution and defense, heard his confessions in a variety of setting and circumstances. Miss Kelly consistently told them that Baldwin and Eccles killed the three boys on May 5th in Robin Hood Hills in his presence and with his cooperation. Okay, that's the end of that. That's the end of the book. Pardon the coughing, I'm not seriously ill, but I have a very nagging condition that comes and goes for talking for great, you know, fairly long periods of time, it irritates my throat and I cough. I have it under better control at some times than others. Uh, I wish that were not the case. I will say, as a follow-up to all this, now that I'm off the book, I will, I will stop if I present coughing again, but um, I watched uh, the case against Adnan, Adnan Syed last night again on, on uh, HBO, all four episodes. I'd seen it before, I'd seen it I think twice before. And I saw it again last night. I would still say that uh, Adnan Syed is, he's guilty legally, and he sure looks guilty. The idea that uh, this 17-year-old had no motive for killing his ex-girlfriend is ridiculous. It's probably the most common cause of murders. 
forms of jealousy and forms of control. You know, as with this case, the primary source of information, Jay Wilds, is unreliable, much more so than Miss Kelly, but he's, uh, he's an unreliable source with contradictory stories, and there's some contradictions in Miss Kelly's various confessions. Though, when you get down to the basics of what happened, he's remarkably consistent over and over and over and over and over again about who was killed, who did the killing, where it occurred, and all the other circumstances involved around it. Sometimes he adds new information, and in some cases he contradicts contradicts one set of circumstances with another. Uh, if you compare closely who he says assaulted whom, he consistently says he was the primary assailant on um, Michael Moore, who was beaten so severely he would not have survived almost certainly would not have survived even if he had not been drowned by Miskelly, Baldwin, and Eccles. Uh, one thing that was striking, Amy Berg got an Emmy nomination for this series, you know, and everybody in Hollywood holds hands and sings Come By Ya as they talk about the wrongly convicted. But, you know, what's striking to me is information that was left out. Uh, there in a number of cases there were, she talked on the phone with Jay Wilds, but she didn't, she just quotes him in print. She doesn't bother actually telling, giving you the actual conversation, for instance. You sort of ask why. There's a number of cases where you sort of go, if you have that, have that information available to you, why don't you just simply present it to us rather than doing an explainer? I'm not saying she lied about what Jay Wilde said, but you can learn, hear, learn a lot by actually listening to the actual uh, conversations, just as you can learn a lot by actually looking at the actual confessions of Jesse Muskelly Jr., which are online the last time I checked, and I don't know why they would be offline. Go to YouTube. Maybe YouTube took them down. They take down lots of things. Maybe they took that down. Uh, but they, they were there pretty recently, I, if I'm not mistaken. It was also striking to me that uh, she managed to smear Uh, Don Kleindankst, who was uh, High's uh, current boyfriend, High being the victim, by suggesting that perhaps he was involved. And when she visits his former home county, she manages to find a house with a Dixie flag waving out front. It's not Don's house. Don doesn't even live in the county anymore. There are plenty of other houses in that county, but good old Amy Berg, as you could predict, does the Joe Berlinger, Bruce Sinoski thing of smearing uh, 
suspects, potential suspects, by throwing in extraneous and irrelevant images just to make some sort of social justice point. In other words, everybody in the county is no doubt a Ku Klux Klan member. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, and I think that's it for right now. You know, my throat is now feeling better. I wish it wish it had happened sooner. I, I was tempted to just stop the stop the podcast because of that, but I've decided to press on. If you want to complain about it, go right ahead. I complain about it. It bothers me. I don't know what else to do about it. If you've got suggestions, by all means, send them my way. And uh, I will say again that there's beyond this, there seems to be uh, a whole system coming up where everybody who's convicted who, if there's any doubt about the case or if some social gr- justice group latches onto it, suddenly they become wrongly, wrongly, wrongfully convicted. Uh, murder in Mortingside Park in New York recently, a young woman uh, stabbed to death by a number of teenagers, and the New York Times ran a story uh, extra, extraneously, irrelevantly bringing up the, the case of the Central Park Five and referring to them repeatedly as wrongfully convicted. The Central Park Five confessed to those that rape and that assault they were implicated in a number of other assaults, really vicious assaults. You won't see that in when they see us. Ava DuVernay's Netflix document, not documentary, but docudrama about this. When they see us is one of the most egregious examples of misinformation and, and race, race-based propaganda, you get right down to it, uh, available. And, you know, of course, it's lauded by critics and people who don't bother digging into the case see that and they go, oh, those poor boys. There was nothing, they, they don't deserve our pity, they deserve our contempt at the very least. They really deserve to have stayed in prison. They certainly didn't deserve a, a multi-multi-million dollar settlement from New York City, but Bill de Blasio knew he could improve his standing with the, the black and Hispanic community and those who support this kind of cause by forking over money that was not his, and so he did so. It's shameful behavior all the way around. Uh, we see this again and again, Rodney Reed, the Rodney Reed case. And again and again, with the exception of, not with the exception totally of Eccles and Baldwin, certainly the Central Park Five got, they'd served their Times, but they got 
clearance from the state, essentially. But, you know, with Adnan Syed, he stupidly pushed ahead for a new trial instead of taking a plea deal. And he's probably going to spend the rest of, rest of his life in prison, or certainly a lot more time than he would have spent if he just simply accepted the plea deal. They weren't going to do an Alford plea. Rodney Reed's case, you know, they've got DNA there. They've got DNA in the state Stephen Avery case. West Memphis Three supporters complain that, uh, oh, there's no DNA. There's no physical evidence linking the West Memphis Three to the crime. There's no DNA evidence linking anyone to the murder of High in the uh, in in the Adnan Syed Syed case. Syed's DNA fingerprints are, were not found anywhere. As with the West Memphis Three case, there's also no evidence that there's no physical evidence linking the murder to anyone else. But guess what? Three boys were killed and dumped in a muddy, nasty ditch in some woods in West Memphis, Arkansas in 1993. And someone killed someone, almost certainly Adnan Syed, killed that poor girl. Anyway. That's it. Thank you. Bye. I hopefully I'll be back. Uh, Merry Christmas to everyone. Or as some would prefer us say, pleasant, cooler than summertime weather to everyone. Uh, hope you have good holidays. Uh, hope to talk to you again in the next week or so, I'll be getting into Where the Monsters Go, and I'll probably read the preface to that before I get into the meat of the, of the Miskelly Confession. Uh, at this point, it's good for those who are following the podcast to perhaps get a refresher on the basics of the case. I think I go over it fairly well most of the time, just so people know what we're talking about, but I'll get into it more again in the next episode. Thank you for listening. Good night.